Hello, everyone. It is good to be with you. I think I have a new hero. Look at that smile in the middle of that chaos. What an inspiration. It's good to be with you and to open up God's Word. So let's go ahead and do that. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Now, we're going to be hopping and skipping and jumping all over the Bible today, so we're going to be moving quite quickly, but we're going to launch it from Genesis 3 because God wants us to meet someone there, and it's important that you do. Uh, but as I said, warm yourselves up because we're going to be moving around quite, quite a lot. So shouldn't take you too long to find it. Genesis 3 is at the very beginning of the Bible, and it's just page 2 on those two Bibles. If you need a Bible, there should be one close by. Turn to page 2. About 10 years ago or so, I went to pick up my second child. He was about four at the time. He was in pre-K. And so in this little pre-K school that we were at in Northern Ireland, it was designed so that the classroom had a little waiting area outside of it. But it was designed for many humans three foot tall, with little benches and little fluffy clouds and little hippos on the walls. And so all us parents would go in there to get out of the rain and wait for the kids to be released. And so we all sat in little tiny benches, and it was very, very awkward. So we, we really couldn't talk because no adult can hold a decent conversation without looking ridiculous when they're sitting in those little benches with their knees between or at their chin. And so we would look at each other and just pray, Lord, please open the door, release the kids, let us get out of here. This is very, very awkward. Well, I remember one time where the teacher during the afternoon had put a poster on our side of the door. And the title of the poster said, Wisdom from the Mouths of Babes. It was little comments that the kids had made in the, in the weeks beforehand that she deemed wise enough to, to write them out and put them on the outside of the door so that we could all as parents enjoy them and, and laugh at them. And I could see parents one by one sort of get up and, and look for their child and giggle and, and then reach one of them and kind of get serious and wide-eyed. And if there was a group of them, they sort of would point in my direction. And I was thinking, oh no, what has my Joshua done? Now, you've got to understand the little comments there were, you know, James, who's for, I love dogs because they go woof, woof. Or Annie, I brush my hair with a hairbrush. You know, nothing too profound. They're four years old. And so I made my way up to the poster, and I sort of looked down them and, and, and found my sons. And here's what he had said. God knows everything, and so do I. <laughs> God knows everything, and so do I. And now he's right in part, right? God does know everything. And no, of course, he, Joshua doesn't know everything, and neither do I, and neither do you, and neither does society out there. And most knowledge that there is to be known out there, we don't know about. And God has designed us to have multiple senses to be able to explore the world around us and to receive wisdom from those who have gone before. But ultimately, the most reliable source for knowledge and wisdom is God's Word. That God does know everything. And the wisdom that He passes on to us is wisdom, not from the mouths of babes, but from God Almighty. 
Now, everything that's said in there is true, but there's lots that he hasn't put in here that we don't know about, that we just sort of hold in mystery form. But in there, God tells us about himself. And in there, God tells us about history, about your story, about my story, about how it began and how it's going to end. In there, we hear about people who have walked with God in the past and who have tripped over the same stones, and they're there so that we don't. And some of them have gone on to walk in a wonderful way with God, and they're there so that we would follow after them. There's wonderful wisdom that pours out of God's Word that will help us live out our days in a way that honors Him. Now, there's one individual in here that God does talk about, a being, a personal being, who has intellect and emotion and volition, who has a plan that God wants you to know. We know Him by Satan, and it is important that you know Him because He is your enemy. Now, it's a little awkward because a few weeks ago, we were talking about man meeting woman and getting married. And then last week, we were talking about marriage. And now this week, we're talking about Satan. And it could look like there's some sort of sequence that we're on about marital life. And we're not. It's just that he's introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And God wants you to understand some key issues about him because he is your enemy. And you, can't, you have to stop dismissing him as some sort of red, reptile-looking being with a pointy tongue and a pointy tail and a pitchfork just having a little bit of fun. It's way worse than that. When we caricature him in that way, we sort of dismiss the danger that he is and that he poses to your walk with God even today. So, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to show you just a few things today because there's so much there. I just want to look at his past, his present, and his future. You know, there's a hundred mentions of him in the Old Testament. There's 165 mentions of him in the New Testament. That's, that's a lot of places that we could go today in order to get a broad picture of who he is and what he's about and what he wants to do in the world even today. And we just are going to have to bounce on the surface. But we'll organize it according to past, present, and future and, and see how we get on. So the first thing I'd like you to see concerns his past. And, and it's this, that you need to know that Satan is real and that Satan is beautiful and that Satan is sinful. He is a real, beautiful, and sinful angel who, who led a rebellion, an angelic rebellion against God way back in the past. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, as we've studied over the last few weeks, is this account of the creation of this beautiful environment that we call the universe, and specifically this globe that we call planet Earth that God put us on. And He put us here so that we would appreciate and enjoy a display of His greatness, of His glory. Look how wonderful He is. Who could do this? And He gave us the capacity to sense it and to enjoy it. And He gave us the commission to be able to represent Him in this creation. Of all the creatures that He made, only the human being was capable to fellowship, to enjoy, to know God, to the level of being able to commune with God and then ultimately represent Him in the world. He entrusted His beautiful earth to us. We've, we've studied that. 
That was God's purpose in creation, and it's beautiful. And of course, marriage plays into that, man and woman coming together to, to multiply and fill the earth with little mini-humans who all also have the capacity to know God and to represent Him in the world. What a beautiful plan. But then you get to Genesis 3, just a few pages into the Bible, and here's what we read in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So right at the very start, there's a, there's a being that's, that's introduced to us that, that's off, that doesn't fit with what we've just read in Genesis one and two. And of all the things that God could say about this being, there's a few things that are said there that you need to know. The first is that he is serpent-like or, or a snake. He's introduced to us as a snake. But, but in that, we read that he's shrewd. There's intelligence in this snake. Now, I don't know much about snakes. I believe they're intelligent. But, but the level of intelligence and shrewdness and this snake sets him apart from other snakes. This is more than a snake. This is more than a serpent. This snake slithering around the place is not bored and just looking for a little bit of fun. He has a strategy. He's strategic in his approach and, and in his questioning of Eve and, and Adam. Now, I'm not going to go into the, all of that today. That's down the line, but I need you to understand that this is no ordinary snake. He speaks. I don't know much about snakes, but I've never want, met one that speaks. This one speaks. It, it's signaling that this is more than just a regular snake, and he speaks of God. This snake knows what the purpose of creation and history is all about. He seems to have insider information that, that Adam and Eve perhaps didn't have. He has a history with God because he mentions God and he challenges God. So ultimately, this guy speaks of God, but he speaks to question God. So this is an enemy of God. He doesn't speak up to say, hey, you know how wonderful your creator is. You should worship him. He speaks in order to begin the process of getting them to turn away from the wonderful God that they're walking with in the garden. He's shrewd. He speaks. He speaks of God's purposes, and he speaks to challenge God's purposes right on the very battlefield in which he could challenge it, which is the human heart. That only other creature that has the capacity to make God look good, but to also make God be ashamed and, and lose an element of glory. At least that's what he's thinking. Now, if we look down toward the end of the Scriptures, on the opposite end of your Bible, you don't need to go there, it's going to pop up on the screens, there's a little verse in Revelation 12, uh, verse 9, that says this, and the great dragon was thrown down. And look what it says, that ancient serpent, referring to Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So again, all I'm wanting you to see at this point, in light of the origins or the identity or the past 
of Satan is that he is more than a snake. He's an enemy of God. And he has a name. We call him Satan or the devil. Revelation 12, 9. Revelation chapter 20 as well mentions it in that similar language. He's the ancient serpent. So he's real. He's a real being with intellect and, and, and emotion and, and volition. He's a historical being that is present and active in history, and he's an enemy of God and God's purposes and God's people. Now, you, you may sit there and think, well, well I know that. I, I, I accept that. That's, that's nothing new. And, and I, I can handle more than that, Murphy. And I agree that that's true. But, but here's the thing that, that that the world has classified God and truth and morality and evil and Satan in the, in the category of Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. Right? We've, we've, we've got overconfident in our ability to reason and in our ability to, to, to sense and explore the world through our, our flawed scientific methods. We've got overconfident in our philosophy, and that's not, that's not something that's just out there in the world. Did you know, and this is very good research by a very reputable research uh, entity called Barna Group, they have conducted surveys, surveys that indicate that around 70% of Christians, professing Christians, do not believe that Satan is a real personal being, that he's just a way of talking about bad things, like a bad force. And the only one that smiles or hisses at that is Satan himself. The snake loves to hide in the long grass. Quite happy for you to believe that he's not there and doesn't exist and he's just pretend and then strike. Now we know a little bit more about his identity. There are two major passages in the Old Testament. The church historically has seen Satan's roots behind them. Uh, two prophets, Ezekiel uh, and Isaiah. In Ezekiel 28, and this will come up on your screens uh, again, we, we read of a king that, that seems to, to, to be proudful, and then as the prophet speaks of him, it's very clear that the prophet is speaking well beyond that king of one who, in whose footsteps he's following. Look at, look at verse uh, 14, where a switch is made, really, from that king to someone else. You were, an you were an anointed guardian cherub. A cherub is a high-ranking angel entrusted with being in the very presence of God to guard God's holiness. You were an, you were an anointed guardian cherub. You were chosen to guard the holiness of God. That's why in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, part of the, the, the way it was designed and some of the depictions that are there include cherub angels guarding the presence of God. I, that is God, placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. That's in the presence of God. You were in the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, and you were blameless in your ways from the day in which you were created. He's a created being until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your 
betrayed, you were filled with violence in your midst, and, and you sinned. And so I, God, I cast you as a profane thing from the very mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Beautiful. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Friends, Satan is a high-ranking, created, beautiful, powerful angel who's been in the presence of God, who chose to not serve him, but to rebel against him and, and to lead a, a rebellion against God. Now, look at Isaiah 14. That's the other prophet who's, who speaks of a historical king, but goes way past him. And Isaiah is writing a few centuries before Ezekiel. Look what he says in, in chapter 14 uh, and verses 12 to 14. Here's what he says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Son of dawn. That's where we get the word Lucifer from. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart. So here we get into the heart of this angel who rebelled against God. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I'll be God. I will make myself God. And again, the context speaks of a historical king, but it goes way beyond him to speak of a beautiful creature in whom pride was found and who chose to say no to God and to lead a rebellion against God, which is no surprise why, if you read on in Genesis 3, his line of attack is, why would you serve God when you can be like God? That's what he goes on to say in Genesis 3. It's, it's the same appeal to our ancestors, our first parents, that was found in his own heart. Let me add a little bit more to that. Again, here's where we're moving fast again. Jude 6, a beautiful little verse there. It's talking about the judgment on rebels. And sort of as a side note, it says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, that is God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Satan rebelled, a whole bunch of angels followed after him, we call them demons, and some of them have been kept in some sort of incarceration until the day in which they're going to be judged and put into the lake of fire, which is what we call hell. That's still to come. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Again, the context is, is judgment on rebels, not, not just angelic beings, human beings as well. But look what Peter says, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he goes on to, to talk about how he will also judge those who rebel against him now. All I want you to understand is that, that some fallen angels have been incarcerated, but some still roam the earth. 
That's why when Jesus comes and he encounters demoniacs, say in Luke chapter 8, the demons speak out and they recognize who he is when everybody else doesn't seem to know who Jesus is. Say, we know who you are. You're the son of the most high. And some even say, don't send us into the abyss. Don't incarcerate us yet. Our time has not come as you have incarcerated all the others. I can't get stuck on this too long. I don't know when that rebellion occurred. I know it occurred before Genesis 3, verse 1. Because one of the fallen angels that's roaming the earth, challenging everything that God has planned to do from the very beginning, is Satan himself. So you've got to believe, you've got to know that Satan is real. And Satan is beautiful, and Satan is sinful, and he's an angel who led an angelic rebellion against God. That's Christian doctrine. If you don't believe that, if you're in the 70%, then there's something off with your Christianity because that's what the Scriptures teach. That's the wisdom of God. As an application, really as a warning, I would say this, don't ignore his existence in our history. He is out there. Don't ignore that. Don't dismiss that. Don't classify that as some sort of poetic way of, of speaking of evil and putting it over with the tooth fairy and Santa Claus. The moment you do that, you're in danger. Don't ignore his existence in history. Second thing I need you to know from the Scriptures is not just his past, but his present, his, his activities. What, what's he doing? What's he up to? And it's this. Satan is a strategic, powerful, and experienced angel who now leads a human rebellion against God. Not just an angelic rebellion against God, but a human rebellion against God. Now, again, a deeper dive into Genesis 3 will show us the mechanics of how he enlisted humanity through our first parents into his master plan of dethroning God and positioning himself as the most high. But some of those tactical operations that we read in Genesis 3, he's still at today. It's a good study to look at Genesis 3 to figure out, this is how he may work in my life having me doubt God and what God has said in His Word so that I can dismiss it and then walk in my own rebellious ways. Now, a little string of verses again for you to look at at some point. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Matthew 4 is one of the accounts of the temptations of Jesus. And of course, the temptations of Jesus is the snake, serpent, Satan coming to Jesus in the wilderness to try and prevent him from doing what he's going to do. But look what it says in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil, that Satan, took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, don't miss the fact that the world is his to give. I mean, let that sink in. He is genuinely offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he would only bow to him. Now look at verse 
1 of Ephesians 2. This is the Apostle Paul now speaking. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking to Christians in their former pre-Christ state. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, referring to Satan. So Satan has rulership. The, 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 the earth became his to govern. He offered it to Jesus if Jesus would bow the knee to him. And everybody who's born since Adam and Eve is born under his rulership. That, that's, that's gospel truth. Which is why in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells Christians to put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Satan exercises his rule over our earth through a hierarchy of evil beings, his fallen angels, and, and a very organized structure. He's not a little red reptile-looking creature with a pointy tongue and a pointy tail having a little bit of fun. He, he's, he's a master strategist with an organized system governing even the present age of which you were once a part before Christ. So when all to say that when humanity, when Adam and Eve entrusted themselves to the serpent in Genesis 3. They weren't just rebelling against God and sinning themselves. They were, they were entrusting the entire creation that had been placed under their governorship over to Satan. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.11. Here's what Paul tells the Corinthian believers. He says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Paul's concern is that Christians would so dismiss the, the presence and the power and the activities of Satan that Satan will outwit them, ultimately destroy them. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. The context is being on guard. He says this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. A cherub is an attractive being. Satan is an attractive being, and he masquerades himself. He disguises himself in an attractive manner to deceive you, to deceive the nations. And so you need to be on guard, is what Paul says. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8 as well. In the context of Christian living, he says to believers, be sober-minded, think straight, be watchful, be alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Ephesians 4.27, again, talking to Christians who are playing with sin. Playing with sin. Telling little white lies and gossiping about other people. That's, that's the context. 
And Paul speaks into that and he says, give no opportunity to the devil. When you get on like that, you're giving the devil an opportunity to do his destructive work. See, we think, oh, we don't engage in all the big bad sins and so we're okay. But it's, it's in the little detailed sins that we love to indulge in in the church. Paul's railing on about this all the time where, where Satan can get a foothold. You can see a sort of a crack in the door and, and, and get on in. And so look at James 4, 7, where James says that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. Christians are no longer under the puppeteering rulership of Satan that we once were because now through faith in Christ, we, we have received his forgiveness, but we still live in an era in history where Satan is active. And Satan is seeking to outwit us. And he's disguising himself as a beautiful angel of light, but make no mistake about it, he's a hungry lion and he is hunting and he is stalking and he wants to destroy you and your family and this church and the witness of this church in this community. And he'll take any opportunity that you give him to do that. Satan is smart, Satan is subtle, Satan is adaptable, he's tactical, he's attractive, he's tempting, he's powerful, he's well-resourced, he's very experienced with the human heart. He has had thousands of years of knowing how we work and how we tick and how to motivate us, but he is against you and he's against God and he wants to enlist you even as a believer and destroy what could be in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation at all. I don't believe that. I believe that once in Christ, you're secure in Christ eternally, but he will sabotage God's purposes in your life until then and destroy everybody else around you. He's that strategic. So Satan is a strategist. He's powerful and experienced, and he's attempting to lead a human rebellion against God. So here's another little warning by way of application. Don't underestimate his present activity in our day and age. He is out there. Don't ignore his existence and don't underestimate the danger that that hissing snake is prowling around like a lion, hunting for people to devour. So that's the past, that's the present. Let's lastly look very briefly at the future. And it's simply this, Satan lost and Satan is doomed. He lost, he's doomed. I mean, I want you to have that picture in your head that we saw in that bumper video. It is chaos that we live in, in the kitchen as it were, but we can smile because he lost and he's doomed. Don't ever forget that. Two little verses that I want you to, to look at. Genesis 3.15, a little bit further on down from the, from the chapter that we launched from. It says this, and this is God not speaking to Adam and Eve at this point, but speaking to Satan himself. Here's what he says to Satan. I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, Satan, those who follow you, and between her offspring. And here's what it says at the end of verse 15. He that is some sort of offspring of Eve will bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
It's what the early church called the first glimpse of the gospel. That on down history's timeline, Satan, a son of Eve is going to come and crush what you have done, even though you are going to strike at his heel like a snake would do from the long grass. It's a little glimpse of the gospel. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is who's being referred to here and his work on the cross that defeats and crushes the work of Satan. Look at Colossians 2.15. I mean, I could read the entire New Testament at this point to prove that. But here's a beautiful little verse in Colossians 2.15. And it's talking about how God has dealt with sin in humanity. It says this, this, that is the debt of sin, God has set aside, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, meaning in Christ. What, what, what Paul is developing here is, is that, that God dealt with sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Satan, who once had a legal claim on humanity, has no longer any claim, no, no legal claim. See, Satan can accuse God of being unjust if God overlooks sin. But God didn't overlook sin. God paid sin through death, the death of his own son. And so sin has been dealt with, and because sin has been dealt with, Satan has no claim on those who have been forgiven by God. So he has disarmed Satan. And he's disarmed all his structures and rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, still active, but ultimately already having lost. It's a beautiful little picture of the gospel. He can't accuse the forgiven before God, and he can't accuse God of being unjust. But the, the issue comes down to whether you're forgiven by God. See, if you're, if you're not forgiven by God, Satan puppeteers your life. And you're heading towards an encounter with God, which will be met with the wrath of God, but not if you're a forgiven being. If you've been forgiven by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has deemed you not guilty. And so your future is in the eternal kingdom of God. Look at verse uh, 8 in 1 John 3. 1 John 3 verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy what, what, what Satan tempted our forefathers, our parents, to go about in Genesis 3. And if you're forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, then Satan has no hold on your life. It's a beautiful little explanation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then look at Revelation 20, verse 10. The result of Christ's work is this. And the devil, this is at the end of history, and the devil who had deceived them, the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the word for hell and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's his destiny. That's where he's heading. That, that's hell. So Satan lost, friends. He is doomed. 
He might be active now, seeking to, as much as possible, sabotage anything that God wants to do in this era, but he's doing it from a position of defeat. And one day he will be removed when God's purposes in this era are accomplished. So, a little application to send you home. It's an encouraging one, I hope. Don't overestimate him, Satan, for he is defeated. But remember, he's still out there. There's a little drawer in our kitchen. I call it the demon drawer. Because every time I close it and I come back, it's slightly open. And believe it or not, it gets really under my skin. And so I call it the demon drawer, but the devil's not sitting in my kitchen trying to open up the door to torment Jonathan Murphy every day. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't know all things. So don't overestimate it. Don't find Satan under every stone and behind every bush. He's a created being. And so we can live in victory because he is defeated, he's lost, and he's doomed. You do not need to fear. He has no match on God. You can resist him in the power of the Spirit. But here's another little startling little piece of data done by the Barna Research that 60% of Christians also believe that the Spirit of God is just an impersonal force of good. Not a real being. Not a member of the Trinity. And again, when I read that, I go, Satan's the only one that smiles and hisses in the, in the long grass. Friends, our time is up. The devil thrives when the church doesn't know about him and doesn't deem him a real historical being that is an enemy of their soul and an enemy of their God. Knowing your enemy is essential to living well today and to standing well today. I close with a little illustration. In the Second World War, General Patton fought General Rommel, who was a Nazi general in North Africa. And before the war, Rommel, the Nazi, was a, a sort of a, a global strategist hero. He had written a best-selling book on infantry tactics and attack. And the story goes that General Patton, sensing victory in the battle against Rommel, looked out toward the horizon where his enemy were firing their, you know, tank bombs, etc. And he smiled and he says, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. And I love the story. Because what it says is that General Patton understood the tactics of the enemy and was able to act as a response to that because he read his book. He knew his enemy. Now, Satan didn't write this book, but God wrote it. And it's full of wisdom. And it includes information on our enemy that God wants you to know about, past, present, and future, so that you stand well and live a victorious Christian life. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how practical it is and how reliable it is and how helpful it is to our week this week. And I pray that in the power of the Spirit, you would help every single believer that's listening to this message to, to, to be inspired to know a little bit more about your enemy. And to, and to combat him in the power of the Spirit as you desire. So that we can live our lives in a way that honors you and be a part of what you're wanting to do in this part of history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.